A lot of you were at our couple's banquet last weekend. We had a, an amazing time, and if you remember, we had, had a very fun game. Uh, a part of uh, the game uh, in the banquet was uh, questions that were asked uh, uh, of surveys taken. And there was a question uh, that was uh, asked of us couples in honor of myself, I was told. And the, sur- the question goes something like this. According to a survey done, name the top four things people from Texas brag about. Top four things people from Texas brag about. Number four on that list uh, of top four things is money. Not everyone in Texas has money, but we brag about it. Number three on that list is oil. We have lots of it, and we make sure everyone knows that Texas has oil. The second uh, thing on the top four things that people from Texas brag about is they brag about their barbecue. And I can attest to that, and you've heard me preach sermons about Texas barbecue. And the number one thing that people from Texas brag about is this. They brag about how big everything is. I'm a proud Texan, and you know that. And I can testify that everything is simply bigger and better in Texas. And unfortunately, that includes egos. Uh, Stereotypically, Texans love to brag and they love to boast. And that's why there's so many jokes uh, about Texas or Texans who brag. And one of my favorites is this. There was a story told of a Texan who was at a bar bragging and boasting all evening. A lot of the bar patrons were tired of hearing that. And so they called the bartender over and asked him to fix him, fix him for good. Well, the bartender slipped some knockout drugs into this Texan's drink. And soon enough, after he took some drinks, he passed out. And so they hauled him out and uh, to give him a hard time, they put him in an open grave in a cemetery. Well, after the drugs began to wear off, uh, this Texan began to wake up. And when he woke up, he looked around and he realized he was in a graveyard. But instead of getting angry, he said, praise God, the resurrection has come and the Texans are going first. Growing up in Texas, I'm a proud Texan. That's my pedigree. When you hear the term pedigree, you often hear it related to animals. The pedigree of an animal is very important, whether it be of their bloodline or their family history or their uh, family background. It's something to be prized. Uh, The pedigree of a thoroughbred horse runs in the millions if it's of the right stock. But as it relates to your life, what does pedigree look like? And, And what things do you place your confidence in? What do you pride yourself most about? When you introduce yourself, what are the bragging rights that you bring onto the table? What do you boast most about? We want to study and talk about that this morning as we continue our series in the book of Philippians entitled Life in Color, Living Joyfully in All Circumstances. And if you would, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3? We're going to be studying verses 1 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And again, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Philippians is in the New Testament towards the back uh, of your Bibles. We want to take a look this morning about how we can find joy in what we as believers should be boasting about. We want to discover how we can find joy in having the right spiritual pedigree. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Paul continues 
this letter to the Philippian Christians. And in this section, he reminds them to rejoice in the Lord. You know, as we've been studying this book, that this is a continual theme that Paul comes to. He has been emphatically repetitive to call for them to rejoice. What you would call nagging from your parents, your, your parents would say they are reminders. To the Philippians, it may seem like Paul is beating the same theme. But Paul, as their spiritual father, needs them to cultivate and to be ingrained with this attitude of joy. Now, why did they have to be constantly reminded of this theme of joy? Perhaps it was part of the culture of the Philippians uh, to be easily discouraged. Perhaps they were very thin-skinned. Perhaps because of the circumstances they were going through that they were easily discouraged. And Paul's desire for them was to focus on Christ, to rejoice in his attributes and in his actions. And it's a bit ironic if you think about it, that here we have a prisoner in chain. And he is the one who is encouraging the free people to rejoice. This guy is in prison. And he is telling those who are free, you need to be happy. You need to rejoice in the Lord. That just goes to show you that joy is independent of circumstances. Joy is based on an attitude that we cultivate. Joy is independent of circumstances. It is based on an attitude we cultivate in our hearts. Paul continues in verse 2 and verse 3. He writes this, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. As Paul talks and challenges them to rejoice, he also warns them and cautions them in verse 2 and 3 to be aware of those who, who, who suck out the joy out of the Christian life. Be aware, be wary of those that take joy, the joy of Christ away from you. If you want to put it in modern slang for the young people, these are... Paul is warning them against the haters. And as they say, haters going to hate. And that's the idea. Beware of those that suck all the joy from the Christian life. And in the biblical context, these group of people were known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jews who had converted to Christianity, but they were still very legalistic. They couldn't handle the freedom they had in Christ, and so they needed to live in the shackles of the law. They confused the gospel message, and they said to be a Christian, you first had to be Jewish, and then you could be a Christian. So important was their Jewishness that for them, the Old Testament rite of circumcision was required for all Gentiles before they could be a true believer. Circumcision for them was necessary for salvation. They believed in faith in Christ, but they added the works of the flesh Look what Paul calls them. He calls them evil workers, those who have mutilated the gospel message. Because when we add to the simplicity of the gospel message that we no longer believe in the redemptive finished work of Christ on the cross, these Judaizers placed their confidence in the flesh. They boasted and, and prided themselves about their Jewish pedigree. In fact, they so thought highly of being Jewish that they brought trouble to the church, especially in the first century. And that's why if you read in Acts chapter 15, the issue that required a decision from the council in Jerusalem. 
They were requiring people to become Jewish first. They had the so-called right pedigree, according to them, before they could become Christians. Paul says, this is ridiculous. It's about as ridiculous as me saying, you know, I love Texas. And to be a Christian, you've got to be a Texan first. And that means you better go get yourself a cowboy hat and a flannel shirt, a pair of Wrangler jeans and boots. And if you really want to be sure about your salvation, you should go buy a horse and maybe a ranch. And then you can become a Christian. It's ridiculous. And Paul says, beware of them. Paul challenges them and says in verse 3, it is the Christians who are the true circumcision. You see, it's not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart that really matters. It's not about you being confident in your flesh, your outward righteousness, your outward action, your, your pedigree, your background. It's not about that. It's about being the one who has saved you. Your confidence is in your Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, therefore, a child of God should boast only in the Lord Jesus Christ, exalting his name and not boasting about human accomplishments and outward righteous acts that were indicative of the Judaizers. This is a good reminder for us as a church. Sometimes we do ministry out of the flesh. We place the confidence in who we are, not in Christ, but in our position. And we shroud it in religious overtones. But we've got to be careful that we do not operate out of the flesh. Some of you are leaders, have been leaders for many years, your deacons, your, your volunteers. Some of your families have been in this church longer than I have. Some of you can say, but I'm good friends with the pastors. And those for you are your spiritual pedigree by which you, enables you to do ministry. My friends, be careful. That's not what you are to brag about and take pride in. It is working out of the spirit that a children of God is to do. He is to boast and exalt in Jesus Christ alone. I like what Winston Churchill once told. He was once asked that great British prime minister... Doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, he was told, the place is packed to overflowing. It's, it's standing room only. Winston Churchill replied, it's quite flattering. But whenever I feel that way and my ego starts to swell, I always am reminded that if instead of me making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. You're simply not all that. And if you place the confidence of your life in your flesh, in your pedigree, you're going to find out that it's an empty pursuit. Look what Paul writes in verse 5 to verse 6. Excuse me, verse 4 to verse 6. Though I also may have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul is saying to the Judaizers, if you want to go into a battle of pedigree on Jewishness, if there was such a hypothetical competition, if there was something I could brag about, I've got you all beat. If this was a showdown between him and the Judaizers, he can beat them in seven categories. 
And he enumerates them in verse 5 to verse 6. The first four categories are his rights by birth. The last three are his rights by personal choice and accomplishment. Let's take a look. These first four are his rights by birth. These are things you cannot buy. Paul writes in verse 5, he is circumcised on the eighth day of his birth, meaning he's a pure-blooded Jew. He is not a proselyte. He is not a Jewish convert who would have then been circumcised much later. His parents were both Jewish. He then says, secondly, I am of the stock of Israel. I'm a member of the chosen people. Both my parents were Jews and some of you Judaizers are mixed blood. You can't even claim your Jewishness is 100%. Paul says, I can Paul then continues, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember from the Old Testament, Benjamin was the tribe of Israel's first king. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob, if there was a a tribal bragging rights, the only son of Jacob to be born in the promised land. The Benjamites were known as noble warriors. The Benjamites can claim great men like Mordecai, you remember from the book of Esther. The savior of the Jews for which the feast of Purim is celebrated even until today. The Benjamites could brag that when Joshua did the tribal allocation according to what the Lord wanted, Jerusalem and the future temple landed in their tribal allocation. They could boast and pride about the fact that Jerusalem and the great temple of God is in their territory. They were the only other tribe outside of Judah that remained loyal to the house of David in the divided kingdom. He said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He then says, I'm the Hebrew of the Hebrews. The implication is he didn't have to learn the language. Hebrew was spoken as he was growing up. He grew up a strict Jew. He studied the Old Testament in the original tongue, not unlike the Judaizers and many of the Jews of that day who only spoke and read Aramaic and had to have a translated version of the Old Testament. He knew Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's only four. He's got three more. He says these next three are my pedigree by my choice and accomplishment. Paul says, I chose to join the party of the Pharisees the most orthodox and the strictest within the groups of Judaism in that day. Uh, The Pharisees were so concerned about legalistically keeping the law that they ended up adding more laws than that were in the scriptures. He says, you want to talk about zeal? You want to talk about passion? I'm about as zealous as they get. I am so Jewish that I so hated the Christians. And I I zealously persecuted the church to no end. Look at Acts chapter 9. So notorious was this zealot Saul, who then became Paul, that when he was converted, many were wary of his conversion. They weren't sure it was a trick or not. And the final thing Paul says was that I have an outstanding record of legalistic righteousness. I so followed the law without fault that you could call me blameless. This last one is what a lot of Christians pride themselves in. They pride themselves in their Christian holiness. 
They pride and brag about the fact that they've never watched a movie. They've never drank a drop of alcohol. They've always followed the rules. And they'll t- these are the people who tell on others when the rules are broken as a source of their pride. Paul says, I've got you all beat. I'm about as righteous as they get. In fact, I'm blameless. Paul says, this is what I bring to the table of competition, of pedigree. You want to play? That's how we are in life. Ingrained in our sinful self is we are very competitive. We often find our self-worth. We find who we are in our accomplishments, in our pedigree, in, in the worldly things we can grasp on. And what you're going to find out if that is the focus of your self-esteem is you're going to find out it's very empty. You're going to find out it's very hollow. It's very shallow because there's always going to be someone bigger and better than you. And if that is the focus of your life, self-esteem and your identity, then you're going to find that your identity is nothing. As you know, I have an older sister. Uh, she uh, is a wonderful sister. She's very intelligent, very smart. And I, I'm glad God gave me an older sister because I'm naturally lazy. Uh, and uh, if I didn't have to do anything, I wouldn't do anything. But I had an older sister and I would never lose to her. I, I, will, I would never lose to her. It was a one-way competition. She was not competing with me, but uh, she was kind of the standard bearer. And, and uh, I would hate to hear when people uh, give her praise and, and laud her, her academic accomplishments. Uh, and that didn't sit well with me because I was so competitive. And so that was my motivation to do well academically. About the only reason why. I remember when we were young, for many years, uh, I'd ask my sister if we could compare awards. Uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to see if she had more than I did. And so every so often, uh, I'd ask her to take out all of her trophies and her certificates and plaques to see who had the most, and I'd bring out all of mine. Of course, she always had more. So I'd always bring out my participation awards. You know, the awards that make you feel better, you're really a loser, but will make you feel good and give you an award for simply showing up. I've got a lot of those. A lot of attendance certificates. I counted those as well. But I couldn't keep up with her. She had too many. And as we got older, of course, we didn't compete like that. But when she got her second doctorate, her second PhD, I said, Christine, enough is enough. I can't keep up with you. Why don't you give me one of your doctorate and we'll call it even? What do you pride yourself in? You're going to find out that there's other people bigger and better than you. And so we grasp onto the things that we have and we show the world what we have. And if someone's bigger and better than us, we try to belittle them. Because that's where we find our identity, our our human pedigree. Whether it's by birth or by choice, whether it's our family, our ethnicity, our school, our family name, our community standing, the zeros in our bank account. Be careful if that's where you draw your identity and self-esteem. Because you're going to find out at the end, it amounts to nothing. Paul came to that realization. That's why he writes in verse 7 to 9 these words. Look with me. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul says very clearly in verse 7, of all the things I can brag about in verses 5 to 6, I count them as a loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. They don't mean much to me. That's what Paul is saying. Now think about how tough that is to say. Here are things I've worked all my life to have. Here's, here's the things that I've saved up so that I could buy. These are the things that have taken me years of begging and pleading and manipulating to get. These are the accolades I have earned. And now they don't mean anything for the sake of Christ. Can you say that? You now no longer have any bragging rights. Think about how hard that is. It's not easy to say that. Who are you? Nobody. It just itches in you to want to tell the other person, and this is the litany of who I am. That's how we are. But Paul says, but what things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for Christ. No more bragging rights. Paul had made a decision as you must make a decision that your accomplishments will mean nothing to you in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. I don't know when he made that decision, but perhaps that decision was made when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. That conversion experience where he was blinded when he saw Christ. This great man could no longer see. This zealot could no longer walk without aid. And perhaps in a blinded state, he realized that all of his pedigree doesn't matter because it doesn't cure him of his physical and spiritual blindness. Paul was humbled. It was only in the work of Christ in his life that Paul realized what life was truly about. For he met one who was willing to die in his place. One whose work in his life far, ex, uh, far exceeded all of his pedigree. That's why Paul continues in verse 8. He goes one step further. He says, not only my past accomplishments do I consider them a loss, but he says, all things are a loss for the greatness of knowing Christ. Everything in the present everything in the future. All of it, Paul says, is like rubbish to me. The Greek word, as you know, is the idea of, of excrement. It's a pile of manure. It's the idea of food gone bad, uh, trashed. In one Greek text, it's, it's a half-eaten corpse. Just think about the imagery there. You get the picture of what Paul thinks of all things compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Now, now listen carefully. I'm not belittling your accomplishments. Many of you are accomplished people, and you have accomplished those things and received worldly accolades, and you glorify the Lord. Praise God for that. I'm not belittling your accomplishments. But what I'm saying is this. Those things that you accomplish compared to the great 
task of knowing Christ, those accomplishments are nothing. They are like trash to you as they were like trash to Paul. I don't care if your name is on a billboard. I don't care if your name is on TV or on the radio. The Bible says, in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, those things are trash. You see, this comparison isn't theoretical. It's very real. And likewise, in your life, it can't be a theory. It can't be a principle of the Scriptures that you just kind of file into your mind and say, okay, pastor, thanks, and move along. It's got to be real in your life. You've got to believe that. Does the greatness of knowing Christ personally take precedence over your life's goals and accomplishments, your own desires? Is Christ truly your Lord? My friends, at the end of life, when you are asked a question, perhaps in an interview by your children or your grandchildren, or if you're famous enough by a newspaper at the end of your life, and they ask you the question, what is your greatest accomplishment in this earthly life? How will you answer? Will you be able to say the greatest accomplishment on earth is that I knew Christ? And can you say that and mean it? And say it with all joy. That the accomplishment of your life is not a litany of what you've done for society. But number one on the list, or maybe that is the list, the one and only thing, the greatest accomplishment of my life is that I knew Christ. I served Him. I fellowshiped with Him. Because unless you can come to that realization, then you always struggle between placing your trust and confidence in the things of the world or the things of God. I'm not even talking about being rich or affluent. God blesses many of you in that way to serve in His ministry. I'm talking about the joy that comes out of your life, knowing whether you live your life for Christ or you live your life for worldly accolades, worldly accomplishments. You do that, you'll find yourself very empty at the end of life. A few months ago, I was invited to a home, a very large home, probably size of half of this church. So I walked in. This home felt so warm. It had, had, had pictures of their family all, all around the home. Uh, family smiling uh, of, of kids and grandchildren. And I expected them, them to all run out soon. But when I went in at the invitation of the host, it was just me and him. In my candid self, I simply asked him, where is everyone? Uh, he said, they're not here. I said, where are they? He said, well, some of them are abroad. I don't see them, but once every three years. Uh, some live here in Manila, but they don't want to live with me. Uh, my wife is not here. And as this man has allowed me to share with you, he is suffering from depression. I asked him a very pointed question. I asked him, sir, are you happy? He said, no. That le le left a very deep impression in me. Here's an accomplished man who had all the bragging rights that you would have wanted. Surrounded by pictures of 
what seems to be a, a wonderful family, cars for each day of the week. And he was not happy. There was no joy. When you place your pedigree in worldly accolades, you will find out at the end of life, if not sooner, that it is all for naught. That's why Paul writes in verse 9, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is from, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Christ, Paul says, in Christ we, are, we don't have to cling to the righteousness of your own doing, your own works. You see, that's what a lot of people do in this world. They do good for the righteousness of their own works. But the reality is the righteousness through Christ, has already been accomplished on the cross. Romans 3, 23 to 26 tells us the work is done. And what happens is that we are imputed the righteousness of God in our lives. And so our standing before Him is secure. We are complete. I know that's a great theological concept, which uh, it'll take some time for you to learn. But we've been studying it on our Wednesday night theology sessions. This great theology of the righteousness of Christ imputed upon you and me to the work of the cross should change the very way you live your life. You see, we no longer have to impress others. We no longer even have to impress God. We are complete in Him. Do you have that righteousness? Because the righteousness of works won't get you into heaven because the requirement of righteousness is pure holiness. Simply put, you can't buy your way into heaven. You can't get in, even if you have a, a, a long list that impress everyone in the world because it doesn't impress God. You can't buy your way in with a car. You can't buy your way in with a house. You can't buy your way in with a position. You can't sing your way into heaven. You can't juggle your way into heaven. You can't even try to leap in. The righteousness of works falls short. And yet, why is it that even amongst Christians, that's what we aim to have? In the pursuit of the worldly, You've got to stop and say, is that a loss for me in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ? I'm reminded of a story of a man who overheard a conversation between his son and two other little boys. The boys were bragging about their dads. One boy said proudly, my dad knows the mayor of our town. The other boy says, not a big deal. My dad knows the governor of our state. The father overheard his son say, that's nothing, so what? Nothing. My dad knows God. I love that. You see, we're in a culture that likes to out-impress each other with who we know. You know, you play that game. I know so-and-so and so-and-so, and I'm related to this person and that person. And we chime in. 
Well, I know this person on my mom's side, my eighth cousin, and, and that's our connection. I would love for some of you one of these days in the conversation, as they're going through who they know, for you to come and say, it's not a big deal. None of that impresses me. I know God. That should be a conversation killer right there. But I wonder if any of you would ever do that. It's hard. It's harder than you think it is. So we'll chime in and say, well, this is who I know. Where does your pedigree lie? What do you boast about? The fact that you know God. You walk with Him intimately. The Bible says we can boast about such things. Where do you find the joy of your life? Paul concludes this section in verses 10 to 11. He says this, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's confidence is now in Christ alone. And with that purpose, he finds great joy. And he finds great joy specifically in doing three things. He finds joy in experiencing the power of his resurrection, the power of the living Christ in him, the power of being filled by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, that brings me joy. It's not in the power of my community. It's not in the power of my spheres of influence. It is in the power of the resurrected Christ. Do you find joy in that? He says, secondly, I find joy in the fellowship of his suffering, meaning suffering for the sake of righteousness. We, we suffer scorn when we represent Jesus so openly. And Paul says, because my pedigree is in him, my bragging rights are about Jesus. It doesn't matter what they say about me. I rejoice in the fellowship of his suffering because I'm going to represent him openly without shame. And yes, I may be ridiculed and sometimes the higher you are, the further you fall. But it doesn't matter because my identity is in Christ. And I love what you guys are doing with Blitz Banawi. I've been overwhelmed by the church rising up, wearing that shirt, boldly proclaiming Christ, getting out of your comfort zones, to invite them to church, to show them that you care. And what I love is, is people I don't normally expect doing it, doing it. I've been blessed. We don't do these things to make us feel good. We do these things to apply the principles which we learn. If you're not wanting to do it, that's between you and Jesus. And you tell them why you don't want to do it. Paul says, I suffer, but boy, it brings me joy. The third thing Paul says is, I am conformed to his death, meaning as a believer, I find joy in dying to my sin. How many of you really think about that? How many of you find joy in not sinning? We call it guilty pleasures for a reason. We feel guilty, but it gives us pleasure. Paul says, as a new person in Christ, the newness of my life, 
I have the ability to be pure and sinless because of the power of God, the very power that raised Christ from the dead. Paul says, I'm conformed to his death. I find joy in cutting off for my sinful ways. And we'll talk more about that in two weeks. And then Paul concludes in verse 11 that he's looking forward to the rapture of the church using a little used Greek word. Paul is very much looking with hope to the soon coming of our Lord and Savior where then he will stand before him at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ. Where is your pedigree? In what do you find joy? And when you come to that realization, how then will you live? I close with this illustration. Pastor Larry Jacob says that the greatest compliment he's ever received was from a, a little church in Barstow, California. Uh, he was still in Bible school in Bellflower, California, and he was sent out by the school to preach at a little church uh, to fill in in the pulpit until they could call a pastor. He had preached the morning message, and he went to the back to shake hands with the folks when he noticed, noticed there was a young man, probably the age of 12, standing back and waiting until everyone else had left. Larry says, I knew that that young man wanted to talk to me, to, to tell me something. So when everyone else had gone, Larry walked up to this young man and took his hands and this young man's eyes began to fill with tears. And he said to him, Pastor, thanks for preaching this morning. I didn't know Jesus was so wonderful. Larry says, it's the best compliment I've ever received in my ministry. To have people walk away when they've heard the word of God and say to themselves, I didn't know Jesus was so wonderful. Think of the tragedy. So many pass through this life and they never know Jesus. They never know how wonderful he is. What about you? You have sat here for many years, many months, many weeks. You have been told about the wonderful grace of Jesus. And you exit those doors and you never speak of his name again. You never speak of his name again. If he's so great to you and to me, why don't we brag about him? Why don't we boast about him? If Jesus is all that wonderful and so meaningful in your life, how do you proclaim him with your life? Are you preaching Christ with your life? And do you find joy in that? Can you boast with all joy to the countenance of your face and to the interaction of your life with others? Say to them, I know Jesus, and he is wonderful. Let me tell you about him. May it be at the end of this life when you're asked, what is the greatest joy you've experienced that you will be able to reply, the greatest joy in all my life is knowing Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your word. It has struck a chord even in myself. I hope in the lives of many this morning, because we brag about everything but you, but you are the one who has died in our place when no one else could. Your grace and your mercy superabounds in our life. You are so good to us. Help each of us this morning to come before you authentically and transparently and say to you, we desire to live for you. I will not seek for worldly accolades. If they come, glory be your name. But if they don't come, it's okay because I've got the greatest bragging rights in the world. It's that I know Jesus and he knows me and we fellowship together. May the greatest joy in our lives be the joy of knowing Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.